This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Fright Fest series 2008 and today's guest. Did you just say 2008? 2008, I did, didn't I? Well, well caught. Yeah. Well caught. I'm 10 years, I'm 10 years too late. Fright Fest 2018. I'm not even going to edit that out. I'm going to admit that I was that wrong. Um, so Fright Fest series 2018. Greg, if you're listening, I'm really sorry. Um, and today's guest is calling in from Toronto, Canada. It's Justin McConnell. Hello, Justin. Hi, how are you, Stuart? I'm all right. I'm all right. Like Before we get into uh, chit-chat, let's say, what's, what's your film called? Life Changer, it's called. And that is going to be, uh, is it European premiere? It is the European premiere. I guess it's technically the international premiere because it's the second festival we're playing after Fantasia, so... Yeah, international premiere on the 24th and the 26th of August. Fantastic news, fantastic news. We'll put a link in the show notes as to where people get full details and tickets and stuff. Um, give us a brief synopsis to what Life Change is about. I'll give the really brief one. It's about a murderous shapeshifter on a blood-soaked mission to make things right with the woman she, he loves. Uh, I could give a longer one, but I and I obviously we're going to talk a bit more about what the film is about and all mm. that sort of thing, but I also, I don't know if like in terms of spoilers and stuff, am I able, able to talk about them on this podcast, or is this something people will be listening to before they see the film? Kind of. Well, thing? I would. I think we are best avoiding spoilers to the best we can. Okay, I would but, say that's the basic synopsis, and go in cold. Otherwise, just know that it's got lots of practical effects, and it's a heartfelt film that's very twisted, and that's pretty much all I'm going to say about the basic plot for now. 
Yes, it is, yes. And I will, I will echo that. I, I've been fortunate enough to, to see this movie in advance of this conversation. Uh, and it is it is a really lovely film. It has it has a lot of heart for one that, that, that uses lots of things that you would you associate with with um, with horror films as well. Um, and so it makes uh, it makes for a, a proper human quandary within within the yeah. mystery of your film, I think it's safe to say, isn't it? Yeah, and it's kind of a morally gray film and i think people are going to interpret it in a couple of in a few different ways and i might even get some backlash by people who misinterpret it as supporting i I always like to say i believe films need strong protagonists but the protagonist is not the same thing as a hero so i'm hoping that people don't go oh this is what the director believes based on what the character is if that makes any sense well until you said that i'd never thought of it being an amoral tale I kind of just I'd accepted the dilemma that the, the, the protagonist was in, and you know. Oh well, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> that was my, when I watched it. I, I you know I, I guess I guess it was more. It, it's that idea of you watch something and you judge what happens as opposed to. Um, well, that's the way you hope you hope you analyze a film, but we're also in a climate right now that um, people take a tangent and run with it, and sometimes that's correct and sometimes that isn't. Okay, well look, based on based on the sample sample of me. You've got a 100% mm-hmm. success rate. Okay, well, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, before we go into the details about you coming up with this fantastic idea and producing this mm-hmm. and directing the movie, I want to ask you sure. to, to give us, to get, for, the, for the Fright Fest goers who are listening to this and the horror fans that are listening that might not be going there, give us, give us what was your kind of first, the first horror film on your journey at, to, to being a horror fan and horror filmmaker. What do you remember being that... That first well, I, uh, the one that mattered the most it, that that I saw at the youngest age that made, like gave me the horror bug yeah, it was well. Monster was Monster Squad. Okay. So that that ties very well into Fright Fest because obviously Wolfman's got Nards is playing and and I am one of those Monster Squad fans. But if I went back even further, I mean Mr. Boogity on the Wonderful World of Disney was was kind of a horror movie, but that like I was probably like six when I saw that. Um, My Pet Monster, the movie, stuff like that. Uh, and, and I'm not saying these are horror films, but there's always like what gets it gets you to become a monster kid is the monsters you watch when you're a kid. And I watched a lot of that. You know, TV would have Abbott Costello meet you know Wolfman, all that all that stuff was before Monster Squad. Well, but tell, it was Monster tell, Squad. Tell me how you tell me. Where you saw Monster Squad? My dad, uh, my dad rented it for me. Um, I I still, I distinctly remember this. I remember walking into a video store, being shorter than the video shelves, and the one on the top shelf on the display rack as a new release that week was Monster Squad. They had like a row of four or five copies, and I pointed and said that one, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, that was how I saw Monster Squad. But then after that, I, I very quickly started watching a lot harder horror. Because uh, I got sick a lot when I was a kid, so my dad would sneak, um, like, let me think, like Aliens, Predator, Predator 2, Alien, uh, Dario Argento's Phenomena. Um, I, he'd sneak that stuff behind my mom's back to me while I was, like, sick with chicken pox and stuff at home. So I got a very quick, like, from the age of, like, 11 through to 14, I got, like, a crash course in horror because I, I became obsessed. Um, the Lost Boys I watched even before that. Um, that was probably my first R-rated movie. And uh, and I just I never looked back at that point. I, I and to the point where when I was 15 or 16, you know, I I, I, ordered, I ordered a catalog out of the back of a Fangoria magazine because I got myself a subscription for this company called Video Vortex, and I would yeah. start importing like foreign films and directors' cuts of like Henry the Portrait of a Serial Killer and um, 
just things that probably I was too young to be watching, but I didn't give a shit. And uh, my parents just accepted it because what else were they going to say? <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's, ama- it's an amazing image for me to now create in my head of mm-hmm. this, how old did you say, 12 you were when you, when you rented Monster Squad? Uh, no, I was younger than 12 when I saw Monster Squad. I was probably 9 or 10. Okay, so, uh, this, so a 9-year-old nine, so nine pointing at a shelf he can't reach saying, yep. can I have that? And then yep. four or five years later, you're importing a director's cut of Henry the Portrait, the serial killer. That's yeah, like, I probably imported that about 15 or when I was about 15 or 16. <laughs> yeah. Who, who, who would have known that a journey could begin that way and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and kind of... I, uh, I, I definitely, like, I, I collected the movies like it was going out of style when I was younger, and I still do. I mean, my collection's nuts, and uh, and it's it, it fed my obsession, and I, you know, I never looked back. I... I wanted to be a filmmaker from, well, from about the age of 15 is when I decided seriously I wanted to be a filmmaker. Before that, I wanted to be like a criminologist or a paleontologist. But then I realized, you know, I just like Silence of the Lambs and Jurassic Park a lot. So (laughs) I I, I found my calling, I guess. Um, And then I've diversified a lot over the years and run a post company. And I'm a programmer at Toronto After Dark. And I scout films for distribution companies. And whatever keeps me in the business is what I go for. You are you are a man across the horror the horror the horror spectrum these days. So so, so let's let's talk about your film then. So life changing. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, as you, you've given us the, the synopsis for it. So as the person that wrote it as well as directed it, do you want to do you want to talk about you as a writer first and sure identifying the idea because there's obviously there's a big concept in this film. So you know mm-hmm. I'd say it's a reasonably high concept movie. So. In terms of what you were thinking and where your thinking starts, where does the journey for this 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 life changer begin? Well, it starts. I, I, I wrote the first draft at the end of 2014, but it starts before that because what had happened was I I did a I did some f- short films that played some festivals, and one of those short films was something called Ending the Eternal that played pr- pretty well in around 2008 in festivals. And after and I met some people, and after that I wrote a feature film version of that called The Eternal, which we made it halfway to $3 million financed twice. Right. One time at that in 2009 when the recession hit and all the investors pulled their offers, and a second time after that where I walked away because they, the investors wouldn't guarantee I could use my lead actor, which is a, an issue, like maybe a folly of youth kind of thing, but I just I wanted to be loyal to the guy. The reason I was doing the film in the first place was this guy. I thought this guy nailed the role so well. So I spent a few years trying to get that off the ground, and then I built up a slate of other projects. And uh, another one was called Tripped, and I kept getting very close to finance but not finding the finance. Um, and around 2010, I made The Collapsed, which is a uh, – well, it was in 2010, which was an out-of-pocket $40,000 upfront feature film that got bigger distribution than I ever anticipated through like Lionsgate and Anchor Bay – and then I thought that would help me get future stuff. So yeah. I kept working and working and working and trying to get this slate of any of these slate of films off the ground. And I got frustrated again. After about a three or four year period, I, I thought to myself, well, this stuff isn't going. I'm getting close to it. But, you know, there's something standing in the way. And I, I kind of looked inward and went, um, it's, it's because the collapse was not as well received as it should have. Well, I mean, I look back at that film and I see lots of flaws, too. Mm. I'm not going to lie about that. But it wasn't. It didn't set the world on fire for me. It got good distribution. It got about 50-50 on reviews, 50 positive, 50 like 50% positive, 50% negative. But it wasn't the type of thing that you could I could walk into like 
IFC or an investor. The point being is that I got frustrated and I realized that, you know, this, this film and then the documentaries I was doing and stuff, they weren't opening the doors that they should be because they weren't a proper demonstration of my abilities. Hmm. So initially I was trying to figure out what I could do for about a hundred grand. Cause I knew I could put a hundred grand together. Hmm. Um, I knew I could put a hundred grand together, uh, pretty, pretty not too, it wouldn't be that difficult. And so I was trying to come up with ideas in 2014 and I was on a bus and I just thought, well, what about a movie where initially, like what if this guy's on the bus and he sees himself? And then I, I, I shortly realized like a copy of himself and I shortly realized, okay, well that's just enemy. Denise Villeneuve's enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it got me thinking and eventually uh, the basis of what would become life changer hit me from that bus ride. Um, mm. I, I thought about it for a bit and, and uh, I just sort of like worked out the idea, worked out the idea. And eventually I, I had the skeleton in my head of a story. Um, and then usually my process, the way it works is I will um, uh, once I've got that sort of like story skeleton it, and sometimes it could take years to get that skeleton together. But in this case, it came together fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. I'll write up um, a, a point form, um, just a beat sheet of sort of like this happens, this happens, this happens. Usually what I'll do is I'll, I'll break down the character first, then I'll do a beat sheet. So. I'll break down the character's entire history uh, the, as be- like almost like a like a, a role playing game for like somebody playing an RPG would do, where you you write your entire backstory for a character. Well, I'd do that for at least the protagonist, maybe sometimes the supporting characters. Then I'd write out a beat sheet based on what I, the way I hope I want this story to go. Then I'll write a treatment, which is what I did initially. I had a ten or eleven page treatment around November 2014. I sent that out to some trusted people like uh, Adam Mason, who's a good friend of mine who did the devil's chair and uh, um, blood river. And he, he, he's always been sort of a good sounding board on ideas and stuff like that. And some other, other people, and just to get opinions, um, all the opinions came back really strong. So I went ahead and I did a first draft, which was ready by Christmas 2014. And then gradually, um, you know, wrote more drafts and more drafts. And I think we technically shot, the draft on the on the page said it was the sixth draft, but but at, once you get to the sixth draft, you start scaring investors. Uh, wh- like when you hand over a script that says this is version eleven, they go okay. So you start calling it six B, six C. I think I think I, uh, the, the version that's on screen, we shot like draft nine or ten. Um, but what had happened was uh, I sent an early draft to Abby Fettergreen, who's my, I, he work, he runs IndyCan Entertainment, which I work for. And uh, he's been, we've been, we tried to get the Eternal made years before we tried to get Trip made. He's sort of been my de facto producer in Canada yeah. for years. And he really liked it. So we went to Telefilm, which is uh, our Canadian funding body. And we went through a whole bunch of their hoops and and came up with a giant package of stuff and a lookbook and all this sort of thing which you they require in order to invest in your film and we were the so, so that, last that's just for, for people so a lookbook for people listening that's you putting together images yeah. of what you think the film will look like well it's more than images like in this case the lookbook was 85 pages and it was the entire oh, script Jesus. written up okay. as prose yeah. with a, with a uh, like um images to go with each particular scene so that People can read it as a story, but then also visually see it in terms of tone and lighting and that's what a hell of a we're going for. Ju- that's a hell of a hoop to jump through. 
Yeah, it's a big hoop. Uh, <laughs> and I also had a I also had a storyboard artist friend of mine come up with 15 storyboard panels, which we would put in into the lookbook as well. And it breaks down everything from director's vision to how we're going to crew up and how we're going to afford it at this low budget to, you know, actor breakdowns of who we can afford. So we went to telefilm with that. We were the last project that in that term of funding that they said no to a month after they said no to everybody else. So I got mm. really, really excited and thinking the money was coming in. And of course it didn't. So we kept moving forward. And then in uh, last year, uh, well, I, we sent it to Keith at Uncorked and uh, ahead of last year and also to because um, we started working with Uncorked between IndyCan and uh, like Avi would put out Keith's titles in Canada. I'd help Uncorked with trailers. So I had a pre-existing relationship with Uncorked. So and then Avi, Band, Avi for people listening, Avi Fedegreen, yeah? Yeah, Avi Fedegreen. He's, uh, he's a pretty prolific producer in Canada. He's, he's produced like 60 feature films mm. uh, of varying budgets, and, and uh, he runs a distribution company here. Indeed, so I indeed. work for him, and I work with Raven Banner as well, because after they put out my first couple, they sold my first couple films, The Collapse in Skull World, I started doing DVD and Blu-ray authoring for them. And uh, we've always talked about projects. They tried to pre-sell the Eternal for me. So we've had, I got this long-standing relationship. So I kind of had partners sort of in place. And around con last year, uh, in May, we had a nice dinner with Keith. And we were like, listen, this is the financing structure. Can you make this work? Uh, this is your amount of the investment. This is Raven Banner's amount of the investment. This is the amount that's tax credits. And it basically got greenlit over one dinner. Brilliant. Uh, after after a period of courting, I guess can, would be can the I, word. Can, going going while you're doing that that rewriting process. The, 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 yes, the, I'm fascinated to know like what on the page um, mm -hmm. you've got because with it being a shape shifting uh, figure, what's yeah. interesting about your about your one of the things that's striking about your film stylistically speaking is that yes. your protagonist talks through the bodies of people that they're in, but also mm -hmm. talks to the talks out loud as it were i like like as if it was the mind thinking because obviously we don't physically yeah there's see. an inner voice running through the whole thing yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, but so that voice changed a ton i was gonna say my... I, was gonna, I was gonna say how did you how did you get the balance right between that idea of obviously real action where two people or three people can hear each other talk and the necessity mm -hmm. for the, the central dilemma which is the, the shape shifter that's to keep moving to different well to be honest, a lot of that voice happened in post, and because okay. uh, on page that voice was much more reactionary. I wrote it as a as a conscientious observer to the proceedings. So, like when you walk into a room, your inner thought might be the opposite of what you're saying as a person. Mm -hmm. And originally, the voice was written in that way, where in a conversation, it would be there to either add a humorous beat or to give the true thought or intention of this character during this conversation. Which was interesting on page. Mm. Once and and I actually recorded with a different actor uh, initially on my first edit of the film. What exactly what was on page? Because we shot based on what was on page. But what we quickly figured out uh, in the first cut of the film was that that particular delivery of inner voice wasn't working. And the reason it wasn't working was it was a little too on the nose and a little too like okay, you're now telling the audience everything they should be able to figure out themselves. Right. Because it would be. Things like um, I, I almost can't even remember it, but it would just be like he, the inner voice would be saying things like "I got to find somebody" or "I got to do this" or "Oh, I, you know the things you say to yourself, but the audience doesn't really need to know because it's obvious that he has to do this." Mm. And it was just it it made it dumbed it dumbed the film down. 
So during post-production, what we did, what, and this took a while, like getting the inner voice, the writing of the inner voice right, correct, took, at least in my, in my mind and in the minds of the producers, it, it took a lot of discussion and a lot of conversation. And, but I still ended up writing what is there. It's just it took a bit of... Because really, it, does, it, does, it, does it does lend your film a, mm-hmm. you know, a, a, what do you call it, a, a noir thriller tone, doesn't it? Yeah, and, and that's entirely intentional. But it was, it, it didn't, the voice wasn't written from that perspective initially. Mm. It, it, in post, it, it sort of shifted and it became more of like, let's make him a narrator now. Less than uh, an inner voice, so it, it is that character's inner voice, but it's not a reactionary voice. It's adding things for to the character itself that may reflect what's on screen, but are more ruminations on life, and uh, and and as if he's giving a memoir or something to to an audience yeah. that you can't. Yeah, it, it, and it works so much better on that level because you're not. You, you're adding something to the scene. You're not taking away from it by going by bluntly telling somebody this is what he thinks right now. I was going to say, yes. I was going to say, because the thing is, when you watch it, is and I next I was going to ask you is that in terms of the way the story pans out, that voice is never telling you either the origins of this predicament, shapeshifter predicament, he's in, and no. or. Well, it's more about how he, his worldview and how he sees yeah, the yeah, world, yeah, and yeah, yeah. and uh, and so how, and how do you, because that's the one thing I, I really admired about the film is that. You really do hold back on giving us too much of the provenance. It's it's really once we understand mm-hmm. the basic rules of what he has to do, that's yeah. the nightmare we're watching. Yeah, I mean, I was like originally the way it was written was even more with like more withheld. There was there was even let like, but what we did was we test audience it and we realized that people weren't enjoying the film on the level we hoped they were because they didn't understand, for example, um, well, I mean, I could say this without this being too much of a spoiler mm-hmm. is that like. Uh, he he's decaying, right? And yeah. in order to slow down or speed up the decay, he either takes cocaine to speed it up, or he takes uh, painkillers or antibiotics um, to slow it down. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't explain that at all initially, and and I realized that if the audience didn't understand that, they don't understand the ticking clock element of the film, mm-hmm. or why he's able to stay in one body longer than others, or why you know why it seems like it's hours in one body and it might be days in another. And there's a very clean device that that explains that but just enough so you get the rules but you're not explain and you could infer that oh well the cocaine speeds up his heart heart rate and that's the reason that this process moves faster and the painkillers were and the and the antibiotics work in, this, in a similar way where it, it, whatever bacteria is eating away at his flesh is being slowed down by whatever you know drug he's on but that's something you sort of infer Instead of us bluntly saying, you know, well, it's, it's this because of this and it's that because there was even in the there, there's a cli- there's a I'm not again in the climax. I, it was a little expository, too. And I pulled that back because there was originally lines taught like explaining that even further. Mm. So it was finding that balance of like you got to give the audience just enough, at least in my opinion, just enough so that they're interested and they're hooked and they understand the rules. But you don't have to explain everything. It, it, you don't <laughs> I'm, I'm going to get like a million bad tweets about the but I'm going to say, like, you don't necessarily need to know Snoke's backstory. <laughs> no, 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 I agree, no, because the thing is, it's, it's, it's the idea of, we, we, despite it being a sort of, I mean, for want of a better expression, an alien phenomena going on, because it's not mm-hmm. a natural human cycle, although we understand yeah. the cycle of dying, um, which, is, which is all on the screen, is you still mm-hmm. feel like you're watching a very human dilemma because you, you, root, you root the action back into a relationship that I would well, he's a very human character. Of right? course, yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. He's, 
Yeah, he's not he's not this other that came to us. He was born I, again, I don't want to give too much. No, 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 no. I was, it was, but I, it wasn't much for you to. You don't have to expand on it. Yeah. I just was. I was saying. I was just making the point that I think that it, it is. It's worth saying for those listening that it is. It is a. Re, it always. It always feels like a human dilemma, even though mm-hmm. you're in the midst of what is a very alien process. You know. Well, I I look at it like I forget whose quote this is, but um, the idea that a really great horror film. If you remove the horror from it, it's still a really good film, and and, and it's still a good human story. Jason, and the horror... Jason, Jason Blum said something very similar. He said, was that Jason Blum's quote? T- if okay. Take, if you take yeah. the horror out, it can still be a yeah. Sundance movie. Yeah, that's so that that was kind of the approach uh, we took with it, um, and I took with it when writing it. Uh, I all at the my at the core, like if you boil it on down. This is a relationship film, and and even further than that, it's it's I took sort of the ugly, the ugliness in myself in past relationships uh, on a on a on a micro level. I expanded to a macro level to make them almost psychotic. So it and and almost evil, but even though the character doesn't believe it's evil, um, it's it, it's sort of I, like. There are scenes in it where it, it, it plays out almost like a before sunrise or something like that. Little little tiny scenes, but it, it, it it's very much meant to be a. It, it could just be a, a like a suspense drama if if no, it no, didn't happen to have this. No. Yeah. So when so when you when you're yep. moving from sort of sort of page to screen, page to production, mm-hmm. what yes. for, what for you were when you looked at you know obviously because things like budgets and resources are finite. So what for yeah. you was the was the most important thing for you to capture in terms of how the film looks and feels or was there a particular you know money money Well sequence? everything's important like everything's important I, I mean you can't forget that you're making this film ultimately for the horror crowd which means yeah. that you if you're going to put effects in the film you can't shortchange them you mm-hmm. need to make sure that what's on screen works and if it doesn't work it's not on screen so in, that means less effects it, even though there's a lot of effects in the film, there could be twice as much at half the budget and it would look like shit. Mm. So it's, it's a question of like balancing the effects to the point where you can afford it. And they, the stuff that people see look good because people will, will damn a film that has terrible effects, but a lot of effects, but the, depending on the tone of the film, if it's campy, mm. who cares, mm-hmm. but they will absolutely love a film that has less effects, but the effects people see are really, really, really good. Um, but, the most important thing, no matter what was performance and character. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that is, and like, that means rehearsal time. That meant well, I did this thing I called the drew Boot Camp, which is like every actor that had to play the, the protagonist that had to play drew the shapeshifter. We, yeah. we only did this once or twice, but we all got into one room and we worked out, uh, common ticks that the character has common ways of walking, common ways of like, you know, there's, there's specific things like, uh, the KO, the K, the KO starts at the back of his neck. So every character, as the K starts, starts itching the back of their neck. Um, there's the marble. There's like very specific things that tie visually and tick wise and body movement wise um, the character together. They may not all have the same speech patterns, but that was because I, I you know, this character retains memories and the person's personality. So. It, the ticks come through, but the speech patterns change because he he is that person at that time. He, he, that and that consciousness is what's at the forefront. Uh, uh, you know, I'm not again. I don't want to give away. No, 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 no. You said, but, you've, but, said yeah. you've said what you said. That, that all makes sense. So, so when you yeah. were, when you were casting this, then so um, was w- w- 
Bill Oberst is someone we, we, we're familiar with in genre film. Yeah, so. and he didn't come until late in the process. Like he, okay. we, we brought him on during post after I'd already had a cut, uh, a 98 minute cut. Currently, the cut is 84 minutes. I had a longer cut when he saw it, mm-hmm. and uh, this was after we'd taken all the time to rewrite the inner voice a lot. That's when we brought Bill Oberst on. And originally, uh, and Bill is incredible. Like he, uh, I can't think of another voice that, that works as well as he worked for this film now that we've done it. Mm. But initially I had a casting director in LA and Lance Henriksen agreed to do the voice. And then SAG blocked me from using Lance Henriksen because I didn't approach Lance and sign him on two weeks before production of the film. So they wouldn't let me use him. Wow. And Bill, it, Bill is SAG FICOR, which means he can do both union and non-union. And, uh, and it's not that I wouldn't I, – I, it's just Bill hadn't hit my mind at that point. It was more like, oh, Lance will do it. That's fucking awesome. But <laughs> now, that Bill is, now that Bill has done it and he's done the work that he's done, I can't picture anyone else. And as good as Lance would have been, I'm sure, people are going to hear that voice and think of Lance Henriksen. And I think what Bill's done here is uh, – oh, people know who Bill is, but he's done – there's just this sort of asexual timber to how he delivered the dialogue that kind of – helps the character be this kind of otherworldly but very sympathetic kind of thing like mm. he, he he did a really good job on that front um but yeah bill didn't come in until late uh in terms of other casting like this is a non-union canadian film so it's it's not like we can go after even big canadian television actors so what we needed to do was we did a lot of self-tape auditions like i had a really good casting director uh, ashley hallahan who mm does pretty much all the Black Fawn stuff. She casts a lot of stuff out of Toronto. She got us a lot of self-tapes, which helped us find a lot of the cast. There were two actors that we sort of found ourselves, one of them being Laura Burke, because I was such a big fan of her performance in Boragnes, and Avi also believed the exact same thing, so we, we went out to her. We still had her tape, but we kind of already knew well, in our mind, we, like, given I she think plays she, the, she's it. Given she plays the, 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 the sort of one of the central characters... Who, who, yes. who has the most interaction, I suppose, or does have the most interaction, mm. unbeknownst, as a, this, that's not a spoiler, it just is a part of the action, it's how the story pans out. Um, yeah. How did, how, how did that work for you? You talked earlier about having to make sure all the people playing Drew's forms yes. had to sort of feel, feel the tone and the candor of him. But then mm-hmm. her playing opposite different people who were talking with Drew's character's voice... How did you yes. how did you go about directing her, or how did she get into that role? This idea of she's almost like, in a funny way, her role is almost like Bill Murray's in Groundhog Day at times because she, yeah. she's essentially she's kind of the Madeline York. Stowe character a little bit, a little bit. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I see Laura and I had a good conversation before we started shooting about exactly who her character was, and mm-hmm. uh, and we we sort of approached it from the perspective that. You know, she's a, she's broken and she's damaged, but she's she's trying to like little bit by little bit claw back whatever life she lost. And she's in the bar. This I, again, I don't want to go too much, but um, basically what we what I did was as long as I can give the actors a basic breakdown of who I believe these characters are. The actors are often good enough to bring what they're going to bring to the table. And in the case of Laura, she's such a talented actress and or actor is the proper <laughs> proper way to say that, I guess, now. Mm. Um, she's so, so talented. She's such a talented performer that uh, once she had the background of who the character was, it was just little micro-adjustments, if necessary. But in a lot of cases, like a lot of the way the way we would shoot dialogue scenes is um, 
we'd do our masters, but we'd run our masters enough that people, it was like, it would be, it would we had enough time on set because we scheduled enough days hmm. that we could run it like a play a little bit. We can run enough takes and play with it. And then always in the last two takes I did, I would go, okay, you know what the basic point, point of the scene is? You know the, the, point, the beats you're supposed to hit? Improv it out. And, and, I, and I, basically I gave myself enough flexibility in the edit with all of the major dialogue scenes that I was able to manipulate them to make them flow the best they possibly could. Now that's obviously what a lot of people do, but and like Fincher does fifty takes to get to that point. Mm. But and it, it, I don't have anywhere near that kind of money or that time on set, so we're doing eight or nine takes. Of, but in the case of like, there's one big bar scene between her and Sam. Well, it's Drew, but um, Sam the dentist, which on the page is an eight-page scene. When we shot it, was a ten-minute scene, and then the final film is three and a half to four minutes, and wow. it's like, yeah. It's there's there's a lot in the cutting room floor there. And and it, it and these are, you know, it's stuff that I found was important in the story when it was written. But once you actually get into the editing room and you realize that, it, it you know, it, even though it's 30 to 40 minutes in the movie, you're if you put that scene on the screen at nine minutes, it's going to drag the pace of the whole movie down. Anyway, the point I sort of answer your original question, it's really just about feeling everything's casting to begin with. So. Mm. You make sure you've got the right actors with the right talent and the right fit for the part. That's that's the hardest part. And then once you've got that, it's just about having conversations and, and trusting your your cast to understand where you're coming from and then listening to where they're coming from and finding the character in between all that. Cool. So what so um what was your conversation like with your cinematographer about the look and feel of this movie? Oh uh, that those were numerous conversations conversations um we wanted it to have a very clean and again i go back to fincher but a very clean sort of fincher-esque style in that the you know there lots of wide, lots of wides lots of long shots the majority of the dialogues and mediums uh i i and just not not shoot and plan to cut out of a bunch of footage that you didn't plan I, we had, I had a very specific shot list going into it and then he would bring, well, like his discussion would be like, well, a good example is the bar, right? This is yeah. a subtle thing, but the lighting tone in the bar starts out very cold and gets warmer or no, sorry. It starts out very warm and then gets colder throughout the movie as the situation becomes more dire for Drew. So by the last scene you see in the bar, the lighting is more of like a blue green uh, in tone. And earlier on, it's much warmer. Wow. Um, and and there's like this this sort of like subtle. There's a lot of subtlety in the lighting with that, and mm. in that and the approach to the lighting, and in the approach to the production design too, right? There there's certain things like um, Julia's apartment, uh, for example. W w the way we decorated it seems like it's out of time as well, uh, in terms of like it looks like it, it would belong to somebody's grandmother. Maybe uh, like, like it, to make it almost look like she lives in a, an environment where she's an older soul than she appears to be yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, um, but in, but uh, like I, what I would do, what I did initially, my first conversation with Sasha with the DP was I gave him a list of films he should watch mm -hmm. and then told him I really like the look of these films. I like the look of these films because of this particular reason. And if he didn't have access to the film through Netflix or he wasn't able to rent it or whatever. I, I, I think I lent him a, f a few discs, but, um, but the point is that I gave him some touchstones to go through. Mm. And then he came back to me with a color and style guide where, uh, it basically, um, 
he had broken down a bunch of shots and samples from certain movies and said, what do you prefer in terms of looks? And then when we went to go shoot the movie, we had a bunch of LUTs, which are uh, camera presets that you, you can light to. So okay. it's not your final color, but you program it into the camera and it gives you an overall look as you're shooting. So we had a, some very nice LUTs uh, that we had pre-chosen before we went to camera to make sure that they had the right color tone of our final grade that we were going for. Mm. And then we would light around that so that we knew exactly what the image was going to look like by the time we came to actually color it properly. So it was just, a, a we were very conscious of the image. We also decided because we had access to it to shoot the movie in 8K on the uh, red weapon. Right. And the reason, the reason being is that we finished in 4K and we've got a 4K master as our final master and, and obviously in HD as well. But that gave us the latitude of zooming up to 200% on any shot we took. So if we're, we're moving too quickly or if we're um, – whatever it is, it, you know, I want to reframe a shot. I want to – if we don't have time to set up tracks but I want to do a really subtle, slow zoom in, I could do that without losing resolution and I could do that in post. So it's it was, it was like I, I had – you know, my, my final image area is 3840 by 2160, but we shot at twice that. So I can zoom up to 200% of that size. And that meant that in the bar scenes, when I'm doing those master two shots, yeah. I'm able to actually punch into close-ups without losing resolution. So if one particular wide shot take is better, but I need to cut, cut a section of it out, mm. I was able to punch up to a close-up to cut a section out and then come back out to the wide and there'd be no continuity issues. So that's, that's that sounds surprisingly pragmatic for what is a sort of taken a great advancement in uh, in technology. Yeah, well, that's one of the reasons I loved working with 8K, mm. and I loved working with 4K even before that, is because uh, you you have so much latitude to do even more work in post that it's not like you can. That means you can either be really lazy or you can be really, like you said, pragmatic. Mm. For the final question, um, yep. give us give us a give us a story from on set. That obviously only someone who was on set would would appreciate, but but possibly gives the listener an insight into the uh, into the challenge of making a movie. Oh shit! Uh, there was a few of those. Um, <laughs> hmm. Oh, okay. Here's something. Go so on. the bar the bar we shot at with the exterior we used is the same as the interior, which isn't common for a film, but we did that. So hmm. we had two days inside the bar to shoot all the bar stuff. And then we had one day to shoot everything outside the bar. Mm -hmm. and, and we couldn't start shooting until it got dark, which uh, since we shot in November meant about five, four o'clock p.m. call time. And that meant that we wrap at 4 a.m. Now, before that, this is November in Toronto, Canada, and there's no snow on the ground yet, but it's starting to get cold. So this particular night was really, 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 really cold. And we had a ton of stuff to do. And right across the street from the bar, and you can see it in the, there's this long two minute tracking shot. It might even be two and a half minutes where we don't cut away and where it's like this long steady cam shot outside the bar. You can see in the background, there's this glowing pizza place. And this pizza place closes at 11 p.m. And we knew that we didn't have enough light in the street and we couldn't set up lights on the street because we didn't have permits for it. We, we had permits to park. We had permits to shoot. We had no permits to like set up massive banks of lights and we wouldn't be able to do this tracking shot anyway. Mm -hmm. So we needed to get the shot done by 11 p.m. And by the time we hit it in the schedule, it was about 10.30. Uh, we had very little time. The problem is, is that pizza place, if anybody knows Toronto and knows that area, is so popular that people pull up, stop in the middle of the fucking street, don't park, jump out, grab a slice and drive away. And they do this every 90 seconds. <laughs> like a new, a 
new vehicle will and this this has happened to me in other movies too where like traffic is the, is is my uh, my kryptonite yeah. um so we're trying to get the shot and we're trying to get all this exterior stuff and every time we'd roll camera someone would pull up right in the middle of the shot jump out and grab a slice of pizza and it got so and it's cold and it got so fucking frustrating <laughs> it was just um but we got it but it's it's one of those things where people think about oh why why isn't this perfect or why didn't this work and and they don't really and in this case it worked but it could have just as easily been like oh what's with this and this problem you've got like who's that standing in the background is that an you know it could have been one of those things where we had to live with shots where unplanned extras or like random cars block like we might have had to live with that shit mm. Um, because there's just so much time in the schedule. You have so many days to shoot a film and you can't control the public, uh, and what the public does. And another one is like, we showed up, there's a, there's two small sections where we're in a diner. Mm -hmm. This is another day. We're in a diner and we had booked, like we were not allowed to shoot in that diner past 9am because they open at 8am. Uh, we paid them a certain amount of money to shoot there, but they, and we only booked half the diner because they wanted to be able to serve their very busy customer base from 8 a.m. onward. And so we were supposed to get there at 6, load in, and shoot and be done shooting by 9 a.m. And we had more stuff in the script to shoot than normal. The problem is, is that the owner of the diner didn't show up till 7.30. <laughs> so we stood at we stood outside as this massive, as this crew waiting for this guy to show up. We get all our stuff in there, which basically meant we had 45 minutes before we had to get out of there to shoot all the diner scenes. So, like, it... We had more locations than days. We we did 20 days and we did we had 23 locations. So I would it be hard pressed to like if you asked a crew member, it was a difficult shoot. Mm. Uh, and and there were definitely tensions running high at times. But I think it was a rewarding shoot, and I don't think anybody would have any major complaints about it. I mean, there's lots of little we there were there was always like little bits of damage and like things that uh happen with film production where you you know you you don't account for it in the budget but because you've got you know 30 40 people running around doing things uh (laughs) i guess the way to put it would be people who know film production generally don't rent their houses out to film productions does that make any sense it makes a lot of sense yes yeah because the, there's just, you know, you can put runners down on the floor, you can put plastic down, you can do everything you can to protect everything, but that doesn't mean some grip isn't going to, like, leave black wrap tape on a lighting fixture somewhere that then melts the lighting fixture because they forgot it was up there because they had to load out 40 other cases, and they completely forgot that they put tape up there for that one shot. Like, there's all this, like, little things, right, that happen, and that adds up budget-wise, and um, it just becomes challenging. But it's also got some great practical effects, which uh, I'm just going to give a shout out to uh, David Scott and uh, his whole team and um, Chris Nash, who did the big the big one at the end, who, if anybody saw ABC's The Death 2, uh, Z is for Zygote, he is the guy who did that. So if you like that effect, you're in for a treat. <laughs> Thank you very much for giving us your time on the uh, on the Britflix podcast. It's been an absolute education a joy i'll just finish by saying i mean like i'll repeat the point i've been lucky enough i've been able to preview the film before we spoke and i i loved it a lot and um and i was anyone that saw imitation girl last year's um fright fest i would i would say that 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 life changer is cut from a similar cerebral genre cloth as that the britflix podcast is provided absolutely free if you want to help me get the podcast out to more people please take a moment to leave a review on itunes 
Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com.